Hello and welcome to this week's Sports Rockcast. My name is Joseph Carroll. Today we will be examining the world of world football. We will begin with Josh and Connor analysing the Premier League games from last week and giving you their predictions for the upcoming matches. Then Connell and Connor will delve into the current state of the Premier League and ponder who will earn a spot in the top four and do any of the teams currently in the bottom three have what it takes to stay up. Next off, Cameron and Fiacre will discuss the greatest transfer flops of all time. After that, Fiacre and I will preview the remaining Champions League round of 16 matches, along with considering potential winners in the Champions League and Europa League. Following that, we'll have an interview with former Sligo Rovers chairman, Dermot Kelly, conducted by Luke. Last but not least, we'll have a discussion between Josh, David, Connell and Fiacre and myself on the best Premier League players of all time, and we'll pick teams based on that. All that and more after the sports news. Johnny Sexton and Peter O'Mahony signed new contracts this week after Ireland got their first win in this year's Six Nations on Saturday afternoon in Rome, when they beat Italy 48-10. Ireland were very impressive, especially when offloading in the first half, with tries from Rinrose, Keenan and Connors helping Ireland to take a commanding 27-3 lead before Meyer got over the line on the stroke of half-time to narrow the gap. Ireland continued to impress after the restart when Stander crashed over the line. Later tries from Connors and Earls, along with Sexton's impressive kicking performance, cemented Ireland's 48-10 win, the biggest win of the Andy Farrell era. In the other Six Nations game on Saturday, Wales won the Triple Crown in Cardiff. They defeated England 40-24 in a bonus point win with tries from Adams, Williams, Hardy and Hill, which secured the Welsh win and will keep their push for a Grand Slam going. In golf news, Tiger Woods is still recovering after worrying scenes emerge of the car crash he was involved in last week. Police have executed a search warrant to access data from the black box of the vehicle. In racing news this week, images emerged of trainer Gordon Elliott sitting on a dead horse. An investigation is currently underway and he's been temporarily banned, pending review. On Tuesday night, Manchester City won their 21st consecutive game, beating Wolves 4-1. Then on Wednesday night, Manchester United played out a second goalless draw in a week, this time against Crystal Palace. Third place, Leicester also dropped points on Wednesday when they drew 1-1 with Burnley. And Sheffield United picked up a surprise win when they beat Aston Villa 2-1 to end their six-game losing streak. Finally, Ireland and the UK have launched a joint bid to host the 2030 FIFA World Cup. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said he wants to bring football home. Now Josh and Connor will give you their Premier League predictions and analysis. My name is Connor Vaughan. My name is Josh Byrne. Today we will be discussing the previous weekend games. We will also be discussing our predictions for the upcoming fixtures. To start off, we're going to head into our thoughts on the games this weekend. So first off, we're going to talk about Man City versus West Ham. This finished 2-1 to Man City from goals from John Stones and Ruben Diaz. Ruben Diaz has been a standout performer thus far, got his first goal in the Premier League after a sublime trademark pass from Kevin De Bruyne, who has just recently returned from injury. Man City, who are looking dominant. Man City were looking dominant, but Antonio scored a late equaliser at the end of the first half after missing a shot earlier in the game. After many attempts on goal, City finally converted in the 68th minute with an assist from Riyad Mahrez to John Stones, who finished in the bottom left of the goal. That wrapped up the game and City provided another dominant clinical display. A City had 63% possession and scored two out of three of their shots on target. 
this was their 14th Premier League win in a row and they look completely unstoppable at the moment. Next up, we have West Brom versus Brighton, which ended in a crucial 1-0 win to West Brom, who are currently fighting to avoid relegation. Brighton, as usual, failed to take their chances. We've seen this a lot throughout the season, missing two penalties and having a controversial free-kick goal disallowed, which personally I think should have stood. West Brom took an early lead after about 10 minutes, and West Brom's goalkeeper, Johnstone, had a brilliant game. The next game was Leeds versus Aston Villa. Villa took an early lead following a wayward shot from Ollie Watkins, which Al Ghazi trapped perfectly and finished neatly into the bottom corner. Emilio Martinez got man of the match after another clean sheet, once again proving to be one of the best goalkeepers this season and the most valuable signing for Aston Villa. Wolves Newcastle ended in a one-all draw. Newcastle had a goal from St. Maximin disallowed, but went ahead following a header from Las Gales in the 53rd minute. Pedro Neto crossed the ball to the centre of the box for Ruben Neves to converse with the header to the bottom left corner. Neto got man of the match, show himself, showing himself to be one of the best youngsters this season. Palace and Fulham ended in a nil-all draw, which is a very valuable point for Fulham. Although they, they, may have, they may feel they could have taken all three and they're going to be disappointed because those three could have helped them in the fight for to stay up. Arsenal then had a surprise 3-1 win over Leicester. Leicester took the lead early on from a 1-0 solo effort from Yori Tielemans. And then Arsenal had a penalty call turned down as it was marginally outside the box. David Luiz scored an amazing header from the centre of the box from a free, from a free quick kick by Willian. Lacazette scored a penalty at the end of the first half, putting his team in front. Harvey Barnes, who was on top form, overextended injured his knee, so he's said to be out of football until April. This injury adds on to the many injuries already in the Foxes panel. Shortly after Barnes was taken off, Pepe scored a goal to extend his team's lead. The midday kickoff on Sunday was Spurs versus Burnley. Tottenham went rampant and played like the team we saw at the start of the season, which beat Man United 6-1 and also destroyed Southampton. The standout performer was Gareth Bale. Bale scored after one minute following a cross from Sun Hyung Min. Harry Kane then fired a shot past Nick Pope following an incredible long ball from Gareth Bale over the top. With 15 minutes to go in the first half, Lucas Moore converted a brilliant left-foot shot into the net. After half-time, Spurs brought out the same intensity onto the pitch and Bale quickly scored a left-footed wonder shot, which hit the post and went in. The final score of the game was 4-0 to Spurs. Chelsea versus Man U ended in a little draw, as had many of Man United's fixtures against the top teams. It was a strong defensive display from both sides, and Man United were unlucky not to have a penalty after the ball struck the arm of Hudson-Odoi. A high-intensity first half in the Sheffield United versus Liverpool game really showed how much effort the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper Ramsdale had been putting in in training. However, this look did not hold during the second half. Curtis Jones scored the opening goal with a lovely play shot into the far corner. Marino then danced between the Sheffield defence before getting a shot off, which deflected off Byron and carried over Ramsdale. So that is our wrap-up wrap of the weekend fixtures. We're now going to move on to our predictions for next weekend's games. So, Burnley-Arsenal. I think Arsenal will win 2-0 as they'll be very high in confidence after just beating Leicester. And Burnley will be very... Their morale will be very low as they just lost heavily to Spurs. I think Burnley's morale might uh, be a bit higher now that they won their most recent game. But I still think Arsenal beat them about 3-1. So, then Sheffield-Sampton. I think both teams have been very poor since December but I think Southampton's quality will just edge it for me so I think we'll finish 2-1 
Southampton have had trouble getting goals, so I think it'd just be a 1-0 win to them. Villa Wolves. Wolves looked relatively good against City until the latter stage of the game recently. And I just don't think Villa are as good without Grealish, so I think they'll finish 1-0. I, th- I think uh, Martinez will do very well and keep keep uh, Wolves out, so I think it'll be a 2-0 win to Villa. So then I have Leicester 3, Brighton 1. Leicester have been on very poor form recently, but I still think they'll just edge it past Brighton, so I think they'll finish 3-1. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be 2-1. Same reasons, really. Leicester, uh, with all their injuries, are having a bit of trouble. But I still think they'll beat Brighton, who are failing to convert many times. So West Brom and then Newcastle, I think we'll finish one all because both teams aren't, they don't create much. So I think it'll be a very, fairly boring game and it will just finish, the points will be split. I think uh, Newcastle will take the three points, just uh, West Brom just marginally worse. Uh, Newcastle have won a couple more games than they have. And, I just think West Brom just stay near the bottom of the season and won't get the three points. So I think Liverpool will be Fulham 2-0. I just think Fulham are going to try to sit back. And even though Liverpool haven't been great at breaking down teams this season, I think they'll just they looked relatively better against Sheffield. So I think they'll carry that form into this game and comfortably beat them. I I think that uh they'll comfortably beat them by uh three goals, just uh same reasons really. So then Man City 2, Man U nil. Against the top teams, United just try to sit back and hit them on the counter, but I don't think they'll be able to do that against City. And with De Bruyne back, I think he'll be able to break the lines of the United defence, and I think City will beat them comfortably 2-0. After uh, City's recent win against Wolves and United's uh, two draws uh, with no goals scored, I, I think that uh, it'll be a 2-0 win to... Man City having them win their 16th game in a row. I think Tottenham will beat Palace 3-1. I just think Pal- even though Palace were quite good against Spurs earlier in the season, it was mainly just a very good display from their goalkeeper, Gaeta. But I think if Bale, Son and Kane are all firing, Spurs will comfortably beat Palace. And it'll finish 3-1. Yeah, I think uh, Palace did well to hold off against United recently but I still think it'll be 3-1 especially with the uh, trio of uh, Bale, Son and Kane especially if Bale continues to keep his good form. I think Chelsea will marginally beat Everton I just think they look a lot better under Tuchel and even though they aren't the best going forward they're very solid off the back and they haven't conceded a lot so I think they'll just edge it 2-1. We've got the uh, West Brom game tonight and I reckon Everton will beat that so I think they'll be very confident going into the Chelsea game, and I think they'll beat Chelsea 2-1. Leeds versus West Ham. Leeds, they either win by three or lose by three. It's like, it's mad. They just pour everyone forward. So I think West Ham will be able to take advantage of that. And I think their defence and Suchek and Rice holding the midfield will be able to keep out Leeds and Rafinha and Bamford. So I think they'll finish 3-1 to West Ham. The mix of Antonio and uh, Bamford are very hard and West Ham a good defence, so I, I think it'll be a 2-1 win to West Ham. Just uh, West Ham's defence is strong, but they're both the strikers and both teams are scoring goals left, right and centre, so I reckon West Ham will just win by 2-1. Moving on to City and Southampton. City have looked incredible the past, since ages now, they've just been on a roll, and I think they'll just brush past Southampton. I think they'll finish 3-0. 
Yeah, uh, a 4-1 for me. I just think Southampton might manage to slip in the goal, but it's not really that much of a difference. That'll be City's 16th win in a row if, if they beat uh, them and United. So I reckon they'll do very well. So that is, that is the end of our predictions. And thank you for that, Josh. So now Connell and I are going to move on to our predictions of the Premier League table. Welcome back. My name is Connor Vaughan. And my name is Connor Hodges. The next topic we'll be discussing is our predictions on the Premier League table. So I've City as the favourites to win the league. I think it's clear by now that they're levels above any other team in the league and I don't think anyone's catching them. Uh, I have City as well, top. Uh, they just have the best squad depth and I think this is very important this year because of uh, COVID and the number of injuries and the number of games in a short period of time. I agree. I think players like Maris and Laporte would walk into most teams in the Prem. Uh, for second, I have uh, United uh, because they have the, a great squad and they're the best player in the league, Bruno Fernandes. I agree. I think Leicester will drop off as they have Madison, Justin and Harvey Barnes all injured. And they're on bad form, so I think United will clinch second. For third, I've gone for Leicester because I still feel they're good enough even without those injuries. Even with those uh, injuries. I've, I've gone for Leicester as well. They're just a great side. So then in fourth, I have Chelsea. I feel like they look so much better under Tuchel, and even though they aren't playing the most exciting football, they still get consistent results week in, week out. Um, for fourth, I actually have uh, West Ham, because uh, a lot of West Ham players have uh, are in form, like Lingard, Sugest, and many others. So I think they're going to get top four. I, I've put West Ham fifth. I think they've been very good this season, and they look solid against City on the, the past weekend, but I just don't think they're good enough to get Champions League football. Uh, for fifth, I've picked uh, Chelsea because they uh, they look poor go- like going forward uh, under Tuchel. I've so I've Tottenham at sixth because I feel like the team is finally clicking under Mourinho, and if Bale can continue to play as well as he did on the weekend against Burnley, then I think Spurs can climb up the table. Having said that, I still feel as if their defense will let them down, as I don't think Eric Dyer and Dobson Sanchez are Premier League standard. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think Bale played so well on the weekend and there's a different team with him like on form. I agree. So then I have Liverpool down at seventh because they've been so unlucky with injuries and they currently have none of their starting centre-backs. And even though they beat Sheffield, I think they, they've still been in quite poor form recently. So, yeah, I think they'll finish quite low this season. Yeah, I, I agree. Firmino is not a top striker and they they're terrible. I agree. I think they miss players like Jada a lot. And then I think we can both agree teams like Villa, Everton, Leeds, Wolves, Palace, Brian, Southampton and Arsenal are all going to stay up and some may challenge for Europa League such as Arsenal possibly but I think it'll be probably Villa and Everton that will get the Europa League spots. Yeah, I I agree with that. I am um, for for eighth I'll have Everton and I just they're a very good side. Villa I have ninth. Um, they're missing Jack Grealish and then Arsenal 10th I think they're going to get top half but they're, they're they don't have the greatest kind of squad this year yeah it's kind of poor yeah Leeds Leeds I think are going to get 11th uh, they're they're a, to- a good side but not a top side yeah uh, I agree. Wolves they've got a very good midfield and they're, they're missing their striker Raul Jimenez yeah they miss him a lot they're like I don't think Fabio Silva's got enough yeah, Southampton, I think they'll get 13. Danny Ings was on form. He's playing okay now. They've been poor since December. Yeah, 
and Palace. Palace, I think, are going to get 14. They've got Eze and Zaha, but they've no one else. <laughs> and then 15th, I have uh, Brighton. Uh, they've got a good squ- uh, squad. Aaron Connolly's carrying them a bit, but... They just can't yeah. finish their chances. Yeah. Then down at 16th, I think Burnley will finish 16th just because Dyche always keeps them up. And normally they're very solid at the back and they play a very low block. So it's quite easy for them to defend in banks of four. But they've looked kind of dodgy recently, so I'm not too sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they got a very solid defence. Uh, they got some quality players like Pope, Tartaski and Fence. Uh, I think Fulham will survive because they've been in very good form for their standards. Uh, I think players like Luckman and Ariola will help them stay in the Prem. And I think Luckman's been very, very good and he's recovered well since his penalty miss, which he tried to Penanka. Yeah, well. Jeez, that was not a not a great penalty. Uh, I think Newcastle will stay up uh, because they just have a better squad. Say Maximilian, he's just, he's just carrying them a bit, but I think they'll still stay up. He's injured now, so I think Newcastle will go down. Because I think they'll miss say they'll miss say Maximin a lot. So I think if they want to stay up, players like Callum Wilson will have to step up. Even though he's been quite good this season already. Um I I think uh, it'll be very close between uh, Newcastle and Fulham, but I think Fulham will go down because they have a very inexperienced manager. I disagree. I think even though Scar Parker's inexperienced, I still think still think he's a relatively good manager. But I think we can both agree West Brom and Sheffield are both probably like definitely going to get relegated as there are already so many points points behind the rest and I just don't see them catching up as their teams just aren't good enough for the Prem. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, Sheffield won in midweek, so hopefully hopefully they get a few more points, but uh, I still see them going down. They're only on 14 and normally you need like 30-something to stay up, so I think they're doomed. Yeah. So now we're going to pass uh, you on to Cameron and Fikra and they're going to be discussing about the transfer window. Hello, my name's Cameron Holland and I'm joined today by Fikra Greeny. Today, Fikra and I will be looking at some of the transfers that have occurred in the Premier League this season and ranking each club on their respective transfer window by looking at what players they've signed, the fee they paid for them and what impact they've had on the squad. We will rank each club's window out of 10 and then discuss who we think have been the top 10 signings and the top 5 biggest flops in the Premier League this season. The transfer windows in the Premier League have been like no other this year after the financial situation at the coronavirus left. Premier League clubs couldn't spend as much money in the window as they usually would want to. However, this hasn't stopped some clubs making club record signings and spending hundreds of millions of pounds alone. Although a lot of money is spent over the window, many clubs turn to methods like loan deals and player swaps to avoid paying money that's hard to come by these days. So without further ado, let's get into the transfers. The first club we'll be looking at is Arsenal. After a poor season from the Gunners last year, Mikel Arteta spent the transfer window hoping to build his team around Dark striker Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. The club needed wingers, central midfielders and a centre-half, in which they acquired all three. In the summer window, they found Willian from Chelsea on a free, Gabriel from £27 million from Lille in France, and a deadline day £45 million deal for Thomas Party. With these signings, Arsenal fans were convinced they were in for big seasons. However, being 10th in the league in March is extremely disappointing to everyone involved at the club. Personally, I'd probably give this window uh, maybe a 4 or 5 out of 10 because I think Thomas Pardy's a really good signing. I think Gabriel's a decent signing, but Willian, Odegaard haven't really done anything yet. So, Fikra, what do you think? 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And moving swiftly onwards, Aston Villa. After narrowly escaping relegation at the end of last year, Villa splashed the cash this summer to try to stay in the league. And after the brilliant signings of Matty Cash and Ali Watkins for 14 million and Watkins himself for a club record 30 million in the championship, they look to be vastly improving. To top that all off, they stole Emmy Martinez in a twenty million pound move from Arsenal and Ross Barkley on loan from Chelsea. Villa have completed completely survived everyone in the league this year, being ninth in the league with many games in hand, beating Liverpool seven two along the way. Personally, I feel this is one of the better windows this season. I'd probably give them a nine because they've covered all the the, the important. I'd probably give them a nine as well. Burnley and Brighton have not made any significant signings this year, so we'll move on to the next team. Next on our list is Chelsea, the highest percentage of the summer window this season. Chelsea spent around £250 million in the summer window. However, their signs have been a huge disappointment. Frank Lampard was hoping to improve on last season, where his club finished fourth in the league. But now in February, Chelsea are in fifth behind West Ham and Leicester, and Frank Lampard has been sacked and replaced by German Thomas Tuchel. This season, Chelsea signed Timo Werner for £48 million, youngster Kai Havertz for £72 million, both from Germany, Thiago Silva on a free deal from European giant PSG, Edouard Bedini from French side Rennes, Hakim Thies for £33 million from Ajax, and Ben Chilwell for top four rivals Leicester City. In my opinion, I think Chilwell could be, he's a good signing, but he's way too expensive. Diaz is alright, but he's injury prone. Mendy's a good signing. Thiago Silva's a brilliant signing. And Werner Havertz completely flopped. I'd probably give him maybe a three out of ten, being generous. No, I, I'd say a two maybe because yeah, two made, or three. The three big ones that they've done, they've been shocking. But the lower yeah. three ones, they've been alright, but not great. Exactly. Yeah. So when he, moving on to Crystal Palace, who've made just the one big, big signing this year, Eberechi Ezi from QPR. Ezzy has been brilliant for Palace this season and might finally be a player who can help the club alongside star player Wilfred Zaha. This is a very positive signing for the club and Eze himself as he's a brilliant rise from nothing to this level. Being released from Arsenal at a young age, having played in League One and the Championship on his way to the Premier League. Now, I have to say he's been very good, but him alone isn't really enough to bring them higher because they're just settling from bottom of the mid-table every year. So I'd probably give them a six. Yeah, I'm thinking that as well. Like, even uh, watching Palace play, they're missing Zaha, which is obviously big. So Zaha and Eze will be really good together, but they haven't signed anyone else. And like, even last night, even though they got a draw against United, they just weren't good enough. So, you yeah. never know. When Zaha comes back, they might be all right. Yeah, Zaha and Eze haven't played much together, which I don't know why. Yeah. It's just not a great idea. That's the big thing. And he wasn't really trusted at the start, I think. Anyway, next up is Everton, who had a very unexpected window under Carlo Ancelotti. The Italian got to work straight away, signing Colombian midfielder Hamas Rodriguez for Real Madrid out of nowhere on free deal. In the coming game, the Tottenham also to secure the signature of Allen from Napoli for £20 million and Abdoulaye Decore from relegated club Watford for the same price. Coming up to deadline day, they signed Ben Godfrey from Norwich for £25 million. Everton are currently level on points with Liverpool with the game in hand and recently won their first game at Anfield in over 20 years. I think what Everton did this season, going to the Championship to get their player, like from relegated clubs, I'm surprised that not more clubs have done it over the years. But like, the core arguably Watford's best player. 
and Ben Godfrey won an Argent Bet player, both for a good prize. I think they've had a really good window, and then that's not even talking about Hamid Rodriguez and Allen, who haven't been injured, but I'd probably give them maybe an 8 out of 10. Not as good as Villa, but definitely one of the better windows. Yeah, I agree with you. They've had a, quite a big impact on the squad, seeing that they've got more points now than they had last season. And they looked early on as if they were going to challenge for the title. They faded a bit, though. So I'd give an 8 as well. It's been good. Um, Fulham and Leeds have... I've, no, sorry, I've, I've messed that up. Go back. Cut. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. So I'll just go back and say that again. Get Fulham. Plug Fulham, yeah. Yeah, Fulham were another club who failed to make any major signings, so we'll just move on to Leeds. Next up, promoted club Leeds United, who are back in the Premier League for the first time since 2004. They've adjusted well to life back in the big time, playing attractive attacking football under Argentinian boss Marcelo Bielsa. Although Leeds have taken big defeats, including a dick two embarrassments to rivals Manchester United, the side looks like they could be in the Premier League for many, many more years to come. This year, they signed Jack Harrison on a loan deal from Manchester City and the permanent signings of Rafinha and Rodrigo for £17 and £27 million respectively. I think Leeds have also had a decent window because what they've done is they signed good players like Rodrigo is good. He had a slow start but he's getting really good. Rafinha has a brilliant signing for only £17 million as well. And Jack Harrison, I don't know if he'll stay at Leeds or will he go back to City but he could be really good. But the only thing is, Leeds didn't sign a single defender. And they're defending the real problem. So I'd probably, I'd probably give them a six, maybe. Six or seven. Yeah. I, I'd say five because they didn't pick out the place that they were struggling. Even last season, the defence was a bit ropey. And that it cost could, the notion two years ago. It could your man, Ben White. The, they didn't replace him. Yeah. Gone, or he went on loan from Brighton. They tried to sign him, but he's too expensive. So I reckon, I reckon they might get him back over the summer. And if they do, it would be a good signing, but... I can't see them doing much, like not challenging for Europe or anything until they get a good defender. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Although I personally can't see Brighton letting Ben White go. Yeah, true. Yeah. But Leicester next smashed their expectations this season. They finished fifth last year, narrowly missing out in the top four to United and Chelsea. But even the injury crisis they've had in the last few months, Ricardo Pereira out for a whole year. Also having to face the consequences of Ndidi and Kaglar Sionku being on the sidelines for relatively long spells and losing Chilwell to Chelsea over the summer. Leicester had to make some big moves, and they did. They welcomed teenage centre-back Wesley Fofana from San Etienne for £37 million. He's looked very good. Also, the Belgian Timothy Castagna, who can play anywhere on the side of the pitch from Atlanta, He's filled in for a Mercado and he's done very, very well. So I'd say that's a seven for me. It's been good. Two solid signings, although Fafana's now injured. They've done well. They've covered all the problem places. I think Fafana like could be looking back in maybe five years' time, Fafana for thirty seven million might be one of the signings of like the century. Like if you look at him compared to people who like if you look at Leicester, who they let Harry Maguire go for eighty mil. Honestly, Harry Maguire is a very good defender, won the best in the league. But for eighty million pounds, he's just not at that level. And if they brought in someone like Fofana for near like less than forty mil, less than half Maguire, and he's only nineteen, he could be, he could, he probably will be way better Maguire in the next five years. So they've done really well there. I'd probably yeah, give them maybe maybe a seven. 
I'd probably give him a seven. Not as good as Everton, but better than Leeds, definitely. Yeah, agree. Right. So, move on to Liverpool. After coming off a title-winning season, Liverpool were expected to spend big money in the window. And they gave fans some hope after securing the signs of Thiago Alcantara from European champions Bayern Munich for £30 million and Diogo Jota for £42 million from Wolves. In an injury-struck side, Thiago failed to make any sort of impact, underperforming week in, week out, while Jota had been out in the sidelines since, since December after having a very positive start to life on the Merseyside. Liverpool sits sixth in the Premier League, but could easily drop to seventh of Everton if Everton failed to lose the game in hand in the coming weeks. I think Jota would, and I, like Jota was really probably, if Jota wasn't injured, he'd probably be top five signing this year. But like he got injured, nothing you can do about that. He's a really good player. I think when he comes back, Liverpool will get higher in the league. It's kind of easy to say that, but you never know. But Thiago, on the other hand, has been an absolutely terrible signing. I don't think he's got a goal or an assist yet, which isn't a major issue for a centre midfielder. But he just, he hasn't been good defensively either. Hasn't been good going forward. Thirty million pounds. He's nearly thirty years old. He just hasn't been the player they thought they'd get. So I'd probably give them better than Chelsea, maybe a three out of ten. I think a four really, because Jota has been a good side. Yeah. But Thiago's really messed up the system in midfield. It probably hasn't helped that their midfielders have dropped into defence. But I just don't think he fits the system. I think yeah. I think you're right there with the defensive issues like if Fabinho I like I reckon Fabinho is a better centre back but if you get Fabinho or a player like Fabinho like Henderson maybe alongside him and he'll be able to push forward he'll be alright but I just like he's just been terrible this year and then Jota I agree completely he's really good they have struggled with the players moving position and getting injured because it, they're unused to it so yeah exactly like if you Ake been injured, I'm pretty sure he's either been injured or he just hasn't played but 40 million for him, even like if you look at his performance before, he's not a 40 million pound player, so bit of a dodgy one. But then Ferran Torres, I think he was only 20 million pounds. Great signing from Valencia, he'd be really good one for the future, definitely. But Diaz, like I kind of I kind of knew Diaz was going to be a good signing because people are saying it's the Portuguese league, you can't really expect much. But if you look at players like Bruno Fernandes, came from the Portuguese league, and now those two are probably. Actually, definitely the two best players in the league. So I would definitely say maybe in 8 out of 10. Definitely, definitely 8 out of 10, yeah. Ruben Diaz has just been, it's been too good, really. But anyway, next up, Manchester United, who had an incredible finish to the 19-20 season, going unbeaten from January until the very end of the season. Jumped to third in the league in that. Although United have had a brilliant season, fans and players alike knew that new players were needed for the squad's progress. So Oli Gunnar Solskjaer went out to sign Dutch midfielder Donny van de Beek from Ajax for £30 million in September. However, this wasn't enough for United and defeat to Crystal Palace and Spurs greatly halted their process for the league for the Manchester club. On deadline day, United hauled in Alec Tellen from Porto for 15 mil, highly rated wonder kid Ahmad Diallo from Atlanta and Cavani on a free from PSG. United are now sitting second in the league after a good season but not good enough to win title. So, what I would think about United, I think Van der Beek is a really good signing, but he just isn't being used right enough, so he's not playing enough, he's been injured, when he had the chance now with Pogba, but he's been injured, so it's really unfortunate for him, but I think if you're going to sign a player with that quality for that much money, he has to be playing. Then, Tellez, considering Tellez is only 15 million, if you look at his performances when he had played, he's been really good, 
But the only really thing is that he hasn't played enough. But since he signed, Luke Shaw has become the best left back in the league, definitely. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a bad signing. Then Diallo, you haven't seen him play enough yet, but hopefully he'll be good, good one for the future, definitely. And they'll say United. But the main signing I think was Cavani. Like although he's 34 years old now, just 34 the other team, he's been like an amazing signing, not just on the pitch, but he he's like helped people like Greenwood and Rashford. Like learn how to make movements up front. Like Wambatak and Luke Shaw have been much better attacking, but can take him with balls into the box now. Because Cavani's such an aerial threat, I think he just benefited the entire team really well. But one signing of a 34-year-old isn't going to help. So I'd say maybe a five out of ten for the window. Yeah, I'd probably agree five. I I thought Diallo he looked really really good in in moments, although he gets a bit overconfident when he's played. He'll probably get better as he goes on. I thought the other three signings, they've been average, really. They've not really ripped anything up. Cavani's been good, but he's missed a fair few good chances. But, you know, he's, he's been a threat in the box. Yeah. So, yeah it's definitely. definitely good. So, five out of ten, I'll probably agree with you. Yeah. yeah. On to Newcastle. They look like they were getting a takeover from Saudi Arabia over the summer. But that didn't happen. So, Steve Bruce dipped into the championship to cheer the Geordies up. He's selling Callum Wilson and Ryan Fraser from relegated Bournemouth and Jamal Lewis from Norwich. Wilson has definitely been their best player this season, with Lewis seeming to be a rock at the back of a shaky defence. With Wilson out injured, Bruce's men have underperformed and seemed lost without their main man, taking nervously above the relegation zone, which Fulham, Fulham really closing the gap down on them. I'd say... They have been pretty solid signings. I've not really seen much from Ryan Fraser, though. He's been spending a lot of time on the bench while Wilson has scored some important goals. And Lewis has also been very solid and offers an attacking threat when Newcastle decide they're going to get forward, which is probably less than he'd want. But anyway, I thought 6 out of 10 probably. Yeah. I think they've definitely had a better season than United in terms of transfers, but... The only thing is, they don't have, they didn't have the quality in their squad that United had. Obviously, well, it goes to saying really. So maybe Wilson definitely a really good signing. Lewis a brilliant signing. Fraser hasn't played enough. Kind of the same as Van de Beek, a good player but hasn't played. So you never know. Maybe if they have a good another good summer window, they'll be safe from relegation. But it just doesn't look that way yet. And obviously, with players like Saint Maximan being injured every other week. If he gets back, if he plays 90 minutes every game, they definitely wouldn't be in the position they are right now. I'd say 6 out of 10. Is, yeah, I agree with that. All right, anyway, moving on to Sheffield United. Last season, Chris Wilder's team surprised so many people by making a charge for Europa League in, the first season, in their first season in the Prem for over a decade. However, hadn't we not smooth sailing since then? An injury crisis struck the blade, with many of their excellent defence being injured. Alongside first choice goalkeeper Dean Henderson returned to his parent club Manchester United. Wilder replaced Dean Henderson with Bournemouth keeper Aaron Ramsdale for £18 million and Liverpool youngster Rian Brewster for a club record £27 million. Both these signings, however, had failed to perform with the blade, sitting failed to, purport, failed to perform with the blade sitting bottom of the league after 26 games. I would probably rate this window maybe a 1 out, not the worst window, I'd say maybe a 2 out of 10. Because Ramsdale, he just hasn't, obviously he's not as good as Henderson, hasn't had the most, a biggest impact as Henderson. So, 
like it can't really rate that much higher. But then Brewster being a terrible signing, they needed an out and out striker and they spent they could have spent twenty seven million pounds, maybe gone into Europe, gone to France, gone to Italy, tried to find a quality player, but instead they went for an English player, which really isn't the way to go these days, and definitely not Brewster, who just hasn't been that good at all really. So I'd say three out of ten. I disagree. I'm going to go for the one that you mentioned to start there because I I think Aaron Ramsdale has been really really poor decision to sign him. Really personally, he's not dominant enough in this area, and he's made a lot of mistakes. He has improved in the last few weeks, but I, he's been very shaky. And I've been a bit disappointed seeing that they spent nearly twenty million on him. I, I share your opinion on Brewster that he, he's not he's not lived up to the expectations they put on him. It's a reason Liverpool let him go for very little. Um, yeah, so a one from me. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. So anyway, so Hampton hasn't made any major signings either. So maybe top Spurs they did they have seemed in recent years to be reluctant to spend money. Um but this year they've had to splash the cash to try to get back to the Champions League where they, they really belong. So they brought back Gareth Bale on loan. Also signing Matt Doherty for fifteen million from Wolves and Regulion for thirty million for Real Madrid. But their best signing has been Pierre Emil Hoilberg from Southampton for fifteen million. Some of these signings have haven't really impressed, but Hoiberg, as I said, has been a brilliant player. He really suits Mourinho's style of play and could be a big player for them in the future. So yeah, I think the two fullbacks, obviously they've had different fortunes really. Ibrah Gillan's come in, he's been quite good really. But Daherty's been absolutely awful and he didn't even get a place at the start with Aurier taking it instantly. Bale in the last week or so has come back into a little bit of form but based on the whole year that's, it's just not good enough for him so it's been average so I'm going to put say right in the middle five yeah I um, I agree with that uh, I think I think I gave United a five out of ten as well and I reckon Spurs have had basically the same window signing a fullback who actually well to be fair I reckon Tellens was a better signing than Doherty but Doherty in, he's a great player he's just been played out of position so there's like there's nothing much he can do about it, but on the other hand, he hasn't like it wasn't a great signing from Spurs if they knew they were going to play him out of position. Hoiberg though has definitely been one of the signings of the season in my opinion for only I think it was only fifteen million pounds. So yeah, I've I've really read Hoiberg. I think he's a great signing. So with Hoiberg alone, I think they get a five or six out of ten. But Regulion, I'm not too, I'm not too convinced about him. I think he's a good player, but I'm not convinced that he's worth 30 mil. Yeah. West Brom have a habit of not playing their signings, so we're gonna have to skip them and move on to the next last two clubs. Lads. West Ham have completely surprised everyone this season, being in the top four in the league in March. But when you look at the window they had, it's not surprising to do so well. The Iron started off by making the permanent signing of Thomas Ducek. He would have been through a six-month loan spell with the club. Ducek also convinced West Ham to sign his former teammate, right-back Vladimir Kufal from Slavia Prague for £5 million. David Moyes then went to the Championship for play and came back with Watford centre-back Craig Dawson on a year-long loan and Todd Ben Rama, who has since been made a permanent signing of £25 million. After a strong start to the season, the Hammers weren't done with their transfer, bringing in Manchester United Jesse Lingard on loan for the, 20, for the remainder of the 2021 season. 
Jesse has showed West Ham fans that he hasn't lost his old form, bagging three goals and two assists for the Hammer since he signed at the end of January. In my opinion, West Ham have had the best window of the league. I'd give them a 10 out of 10. They haven't made a bad signing. Every single signing has had a really positive impact on the club. So I think it's definitely 10 out of 10. Look, look where they are in the league compared to last year. Yeah, definitely. They've picked out all the places where they need to improve and they've absolutely done that, especially with the two Czech players, Suchek and Sufal, is it? They've both been really good and they're both very, very cheap, as you think. 20 million for both of them. So compared to some of the prices that you pay for that kind of player, it's ridiculous these days. But yeah, Craig Dawson, he's been very good as well, even though he might be going back to Watford at the end of the year. You don't know. Ben Rama, he's he's in the solid impact, but Lingard's come in and he's he's really given them something extra in attack that they didn't have before. So yeah, it's probably got to be definitely a, they've gone from fifth last to fifth. Exactly. Someone that didn't have such a great window is Wolves. Two really solid te- seasons up top seven in the league both times. They've gone and spent a lot of money this this summer and it's not really gone so well they spent 37 million pounds for, for Fabio Silva who's 18 it's, it hasn't really gone to plan for him because he was chucked in the deep end after Raul Jimenez was injured it initially started quite okay but it struggled. he struggled recently they also brought in Nelson Semedo from Barcelona for 27 million to replace Doherty but they're a completely different type of player and the change of formation Semedo has kind of forced it's not been quite the impact that Doherty had there. So I'd, I'd probably have to give them a three. It's it's not been great, even though there's definitely promise there with Fabio Silva. It, it's not happening yet. And they've, they've definitely struggled since Jimenez got injured. It shows how much of a drop. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with the three out of ten because Semedo, he's a very good player, but £27 million pounds and... He can't just base it off, like, if he was a good player and he's solid. Like, for a player who's decent, like Tomato, 27 million isn't really enough, considering they're, I think they're maybe 12th in the league, 13th in the league at this stage. I don't know about the fixtures last night, but I think they're around there. And then Fabio Silva, he's really, really good in Portugal, but he's just been completely thrown into the deep end of the Prem after him and Ek got injured. So he hasn't had any time to kind of progress in the youth level which shouldn't really you shouldn't be paying 37 million pounds for someone who needs to progress in the youth levels anyway so that's not really a great signing either so I agree with you for 10 so with that comes the end of our segment thanks for everyone that tuned in today um, next up myself and Joseph Carroll will be going through the Champions League and the Europa League thank you our next game is Sevilla versus Dortmund Dortmund hold a 3-2 lead here and I think Dortmund will win the second leg 2-1 and advance as I feel Sevilla won't be able to stop players like Haaland, Jadon Sancho and Royce from creating a couple of chances for goals which will be enough to send them through. Who do you think wins this one? Yeah, agree. Dortmund shouldn't have a problem with the attacking ability they have. They easily gift goals to opponents that should give Sevilla hope. I'd still back Dortmund to get through here although I don't see them getting any further in the quarterfinal. I think it's a very similar story with PSG. I think we definitely won't be seeing a repeat of the classic second leg capitulation from them because Barcelona have just been so incredibly bad recently. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you there, Fiocre. 
uh, this PSG team that is far better than the team that was beaten off the park by Barcelona 6-1 a couple of years ago. And without without Suarez and Neymar anymore, which now obviously Neymar's with PSG, I think it's going to be a real challenge for Barcelona to create anything going forward. So I think that PSG win the second leg 3-1 in advance easily. One thing I'd like to say is that I think Barca's younger players, they made a really positive impact from the get the bench in the first leg. And the old players, such as Pjanic, I really don't know why they let Arthur go for him. And the likes of Busquets and Piquet, they really look past it. Even Messi, despite his moments of man- magic, is beginning to really struggle recently. They spent four hundred million on the players that aren't even guaranteed starters like Griezmann, Coutinho, and Dembele, and um, really, really bad management. I agree with you there, and I think it'll be interesting to see if they use the younger players a bit more. They did make a good impact when they came on against PSG, and it'll be interesting to see how Koeman sets up his team. Will he go for the experienced players like Busquets, as you mentioned, or will he try and go for the younger players? And I think right now it's fair to say there's so many problems at Barcelona. And for one of the great clubs so far, the 21st century, it all seems to be crumbling at, in front of our eyes. So our next game is Liverpool versus Orby Leipzig. Leipzig are in a great run of domestic form, having won their last five league games in a row, which is a stark contrast to Liverpool's recent form. However, when the sides met in their first leg, Liverpool came away with a 2-0 win. I think Liverpool win a close second leg to advance, however, with Liverpool's shaky defensive late. Don't completely rule out Leipzig. If they get an early goal, the pressure will intensify. Fierke, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Liverpool were a little lucky in the first leg because Leipzig have been really excellent at home this year. The game had to be played in Hungary. Now... The game is again going to be played in Hungary, and I I do still think Liverpool should be comfortable because they didn't see anything to suggest that they've got anything in attack to threaten Liverpool's place in the quarterfinals, despite some shaky form recently. And the English team that's in a completely different situation is Man City, who are in excellent form and really don't seem to have any trouble with anyone recently. I see Munch and Gladbach posing absolutely no issues whatsoever for City as in the first leg. They'll swap them aside. And then again, you never know with City in Europe. Yeah, obviously City are in such great form right now after that 4-1 win against Wolves on Tuesday night. It was their 21st win in a row. And they've only conceded nine goals in their last 29 games, which is really what's driving this run at times. And they haven't conceded twice in the game since the last 2-0 to Tottenham. Um, I think they win this one 3-0 and I think they'll look like serious contenders to win the whole thing as they have really all year the next game we're looking at is Real Madrid versus Atalanta Real have won their last five straight in all competitions including a 1-0 win in the first leg against Atalanta and I don't see that changing in my opinion they're more talented and experienced than Atalanta and with Modric, Cruz and Casemiro who have aged but when they're running the midfield, I think it's too much talent for Atlanta. That's why I think they're going to... Yeah, I, I actually disagree with you personally. I think Real benefited from a really, really strange red card 17 minutes in, and they really struggled to break down Atlanta. Atlanta are still a really good team despite losing Papu Gomez to Sevilla in January. They feel they can force extra time with an early goal. In maybe steal it there in extra time or on penalties. I think Real just look really slow in attack and I can't see creativity coming from anyone other than Modric and Benzema. 
who are getting quite old at this stage, really. Also, what do you think of Bayern Lazio, Joseph? Personally, I think Bayern will coast through with a nil-nil because all the hard work is done. I don't see them putting much effort into it. Yeah, and I mean, Bayern really humiliated Lazio on the first leg. They were 4-0 up after about 50 minutes. They did give up a goal, but there was a clear golfing class between the two sides. I think Bayern could potentially take the foot off the gas, like you said, and they'll all draw as possible. But they haven't lost at home all season. And I don't see that changing, so I'm going with Bayern to win 2-1, in spite of Bayern's shaky defence at times, which has given up six goals in their last four games. So our final game to predict is Chelsea versus Atletico. In the first leg, it took a moment of magic from Olivier Giroud and arguably a bit of luck. It, the ball hit off an Atletico defender and Giroud would have been offside if it hadn't. But they got the win anyway. And they dominated the majority of the game, Chelsea, without ever looking that dangerous. I think it will be a very different game, though as Atletico can't afford to sit back like they did in the first leg. Joe Felix was a player I was really looking forward to watching to, to watching in the first leg, but he disappointed phenomenally as really didn't get to touch the ball because of the defensive system that Atletico had, who are the leaders in Spain now. Um, I think Atletico will have to be far more attacking, obviously, but I think Chelsea will hold on. They earned a solid draw against Man United on Sunday, and I think they'll find a way to get a result out of this game. I'm going one all vehicle. Who gets through? Well, as you said, Chelsea did dominate the first leg, but they didn't really look like creating many chances. But it is easy to forget that it was also an away game for Atletico. So if the Spanish team can go to Stamford Bridge and grab an early goal, they have a decent chance. Because Chelsea really did struggle to break them down. But if they don't, I can see them getting desperate later in the match and Chelsea just picking them off on the counter-attack. So it seems that we do agree on most of our predictions for the quarter-finals. But what about the overall winner? Who are the favourites, in your opinion? Yeah, I really like Barn and City. I think they've just looked like the two most dominant teams so far this year. But I think Liverpool and Chelsea, Liverpool and PSG, apologies, they both have a chance to sneak in to their very talented squads. What do you think, Fiacre? You would think Juve would be in the mix, but I struggle to see them getting past Porto as they seem to just have the perfect counter for Juventus' style. What about you? Yeah, I have Juve getting past Porto, but I'm not really sold yet on Pirlo as a quality coach. He reminds me a bit of the Lampard situation at Chelsea where it was a job for a former great player. So I'm not really convinced of him. So that's why I can't see them going much further beyond the last stage where I think they will get through. What about Lampard's old team? Where do Chelsea fit in? They seem to be in a, a bit of an unknown quantity under Tuchel. Yeah, I think as always, Chelsea have a very talented squad. You know, and talent is never the issue. There's a lot of good young players. But the issue is putting it all together. And I think Chelsea are just not good enough yet. Maybe in a couple of years' time, if Tuchel's the right man, he'll get it done. But I think it was interesting, even the hire of Tuchel. I know there was rumours that it was board issues and all that, but after just being sacked by PSG to straight away get the Chelsea job, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I personally think it was a bit of a harsh sacking because all the teams like PSG that went deep into the European competitions and missed preseason last year, they all had a slow start to the season. If you look at City and United, who were both very mid-table in November, they both started really slowly, but they're the top two in the Premier League. It's been a similar situation with PSG, even when they brought in the new manager. Yes, yeah, so I think we've really now at this point discussed all the teams in the mix, but who do you see coming out on top, Fiacre? 
are, I think City and PSG are very good and they could well win it if everything goes their way. But I personally think Bayern have just got way too much in attack with the likes of Lewandowski, um, Nabry and Muller with injuries being the only thing that I think could get in their way. Yeah, I think Bayern are a real contender too, but the challenge of trying to repeat winning a major European trophy, trying to repeat winning a Champions League is very difficult. Real did it three years in a row, but it's a difficult task. So that's why I'm going with Man City. I think the amount of talent they have in that midfield with Gundogan, Foden and De Bruyne, if they can find a way to get enough goals up front with the likes of Aguero and Jesus, then I think they'll be good enough to do it. Do you think that it needs an Ilke Gundogan hat-trick in the Champions League final to get that done then? I, I think if he was to score a hat-trick, then they definitely win it. But I don't think it's a necessity. Um, so now, Fiocker, on to your favourite competition. I know you're a Europa League expert. So who are some teams to look out for going into this, uh, I suppose, the advanced stages of the competition? Yeah, so my two personal predictions for the final are actually facing off in the last 16 in Granada and Molde. Another big last 16 tie is, of course, Man United against AC Milan. But, so what do you think, I suppose, the other big English clubs, Spurs and Arsenal? Well, I, I have a sneaking feeling that Arsenal will lose to Olympiacos again, as they did last year. But... I think Spurs are looking a lot better this year. They've been really solid in the Cups, which is something that you see a lot with Mourinho. But I, they are very inconsistent in their league form, but they, I think they could push it, push for the Europa League. It's definitely one of their goals. Yeah, so now I suppose, apart from Granada and Molde, who I know you're your big favourites for the competition, who do you see as maybe a dark horse winner if neither of them does it? Well, obviously, you have teams like United and Milan. If one of them knocks each other out, then it's as much clear as they w- should in the last 16. Um, the, the, they'd be big favourites, but I think Spurs are in the mix as well. And, of course, Molde. What about yourself? Yeah, I think it's actually a much higher quality competition than most years. And I have a surprise pick. I think Arsenal will pull it off. Um, they got off to a really poor start to the season. But I think they're picking up a little bit of form now. They're getting getting things together. They have a pretty talented squad, as they always do. And they've won seven of their eight Europa League games now. You might say an easy group. But to me, I think for Arteta, it's a focus point. And it's their best chance to get into the Champions League. And they also have a very good win recently against Leicester, which showed some improvements. So I do see them winning it. But I think Roma, AC Milan, Man United and Tottenham... They're all quality contenders and really they're probably good enough to be Champions League teams, but not to be this year. Not to disagree with that. Um, all my extensive Europa League knowledge is telling me that Arsenal are going to struggle away against Olympiacos. It's just a long way away. Well, on that note of encouragement for my prediction, uh, we'll end this segment. Next is Luca, who is an interview with Dermot Kelly. Hi, my name is Luca and today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Dermot Kelly, who works as a consultant in St. Vincent's Hospital and was chairman of Sligo Rovers during their most successful era as a League of Ireland side between 2009 and 2014. Thanks for taking the time out to come to the podcast today. No problem, Luca. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Dermot, you were born in Roscommon, but you became a Sligo fan from an early age. How did that happen? 
Well, Luke, I wasn't actually born in Roscommon, but my folks were from Roscommon. We were bo- I was born in the States and uh, my father was a mad uh, soccer fan and a big Sligo Rovers fan. And when everyone else was supporting Leeds United and Liverpool, we were going off to watch Sligo Rovers. We weren't too successful back then, but uh, that's where my love of the club started when I was a very young boy in my early years. And what would you say is your most memorable moment growing up as a Rovers fan? Well, I think, Luca, we played in about eight or nine FAI Cup finals. Um, and I think I've been at four or five of them. We lost them all. and was in our eighth or maybe sixth or seventh one that we eventually won. It was 1983. It was an incredibly wet day. But we came from a goal down at halftime to win. And the excitement of winning the first FAI Cup for a team that was 70 or 80 years in existence was fabulous. So that that's very special. And a day I think everyone in Sligo would remember who was who was at the match at the time. And how did you go from being a fan all the way to chairman of the club? Um, that's the million-dollar question, Luke. I have absolutely no idea. Um, for people out there, League of Ireland is a, a very niche product. It's a fabulous sport. Uh, everyone who's involved does it for love of the game, but there's very little money in it, Luca. And 40% of all the income, 50% of all the income that we bring in every year is in fundraising, charity fundraising and sponsorships and supporters clubs. So it's not like Manchester United where you have massive TV rights and merchandising contracts. They don't exist. So I used to fundraise quite a bit for Sligo and was successful at that in the Dublin area. And then a group of us got together to say we'd give it a chance and see if six or seven of us joined at the one time. Could we transform the club and do something special? And um, unfortunately, in these things, Luke, it's easier to get in than it is to get out. You go in thinking you'll do a year or two and it ends up being five or six years. And that's how it really happened. And uh, with great times, but a, a lot of effort, you know. Yeah. And obviously being chairman of a club like Sligo Rovers, from nearly 200 kilometres away in Dublin is a relentless job. What were some of the biggest challenges you had to face on a day-to-day basis and how did you manage with them? Well, Luke, ironically, it's a small town, Sligo, and people wouldn't know, but it's the most supported club per head of population probably in Europe, that the town only has 18,000, I think, was the population, and we were attracting 4,000 people to our games. It's a huge a part of the local community. So it was nearly advantageous at times that you didn't live there and you didn't have to listen to all the complaints that went on. And uh, before Zoom was popular or conference calls, I was doing those back in the day to save me trips up and down whenever possible. But there was a lot of hours and a lot of travel. Um, but when you win a few things and win a few football matches, you forget all of that and you forget the pain of it. Yeah, during your time at the club, you managed to take Sligo from a position of financial fragility to one of stability. What was your key to success? Well, one thing about football is, at League of Ireland level, if you're winning matches on the pitch, Luke, you, you get money in through every source. Sponsorship goes up, attendances go up, donations go up. So rather than worrying about everything else, I tried to get the product right. And we were phenomenally lucky at the time. We had a manager, a guy called Paul Cook, who just yesterday got appointed to manage Ipswich Town. He's gone on to a very successful career in England. Paul was starting his managerial career and really absolutely fantastic guy and a real football man. So we kind of got him as an ambassador of the club and he was able to attract very, very good players. And suddenly 
as the income started going in, we started investing in the infrastructure so that when the period left, there was something left behind. So we made a rule that maybe 25% of all our income went into development of the ground and infrastructure and underage structures um, to try and run it more as a sustainable business. And maybe in hindsight, it was wrong if we put more money into the team immediately, we'd have had more success possibly. But I think 10 years on, we're all very glad we did it. We have a fantastic stadium and a very good structure down there. Yeah, and with that, you ended up winning uh, the FAI Cup three times, the League Cup, the Satanta Cup, and then you qualified for Europe after winning the Electricity League. What were some of the advantages and struggles of competing in Europe? Well, the biggest thing with Europe is the is that the draw is made only two weeks before the first game. So the draw is made live, which is fantastic for the fans. But when you're trying to book for 30 or 40 players and officials and team support staff to get over to somewhere like northern Lithuania with very few flights, we can't charter a plane like Manchester United. So it was very, very difficult that by the time the draw was made, all the fans had booked the cheap flights on Ryanair. And it sounds funny, but we managed to get a contact in one of the airlines who allowed us to block book off seats at a very quick time period after the draw. And that saved us a lot of money. But the logistics are very high. And you play a game, Luke, on a Wednesday and you win and you go through to the next round. And the next game is on the following Wednesday and it might be in Moscow or somewhere. And you've got to get 30 flights and all the support of staff over there in time for that match and FIFA and UEFA are very strict you must be in the country 24 hours before the kickoff you can't arrive on the morning and if not you're not allowed to fulfill it and there's very very heavy fines so there was a lot of red tape around it but then again the the income is phenomenal and the rewards for winning in Europe if you win one match in Europe you you get more prize money than you get for winning the whole league of Ireland so it was certainly worth doing and we had some great results and some great, great trips. I saw places in Europe I never thought I'd see, um, but but definitely a very difficult thing for a volunteer organisation. And that's the thing about these clubs. They're run by volunteers. The players might get paid, but none of the rest of us get paid. It's all done in your free time, um, but, but fantastic memories. And was it a tough decision to then step down from being chairman or did you feel the time was right? Well, I think after six or seven years, we had won everything. We'd got to the point and we'd appointed a manager, a guy called John Coleman, another very, very good friend of mine. And John had come in and I said I'd stay till the end of John's tenure. And then very quickly after coming in a number of months, John got a job back in England. He is actually managing Accrington Stanley now over there. And when he decided or he wanted to leave, I just thought I wasn't going to bring in another new manager, possibly three or four years. and leave halfway through Luca. So at that time, I just stepped down and for the first year just was kind of an advisor to the incoming chairman and then stepped away completely and uh, concentrated on more relaxing pastimes. And then after a very successful career in football, you now have one in medicine. Was there anything you learned from your time in managing Sligo that you brought into your career in medicine? Oh, that's very, very good question. Um, Every business is the same. Every business is life, Luke. It's the effort you put in and it's the people you meet. 
And it's the effort and the bond you have with your friends and your mates and your workmates that determines your success. If that's in the operating room or it's in a dressing room and people management is hugely, hugely important. And I think those skills and negotiating with people and understanding kind of from the football end what made these fantastic footballers tick and dealing with managers like Paul and John Coleman and Ian Barraclough, who now manages the Northern Ireland team, all worked under me or with me in Sligo. So there are skills that in every job, be it a law firm, be it in a shop, be it IT company, you need the same skills. And that's interacting with people and and engendering loyalty and hard work amongst us all. So they were skills that transferred over back to, to the medical career. And could you see yourself possibly returning to a position in football in the future? Or do you think you're happy where you are? Just in case my wife happens to be listening, I better answer no. I have no intention of going back. But there's a buzz out of it. There's no question. We won a game in, in the far end of Ukraine in Europe and the feeling and the euphoria and the buzz is anyone who participates in sport, if you win a big game and you win against the odds, it's it's a very difficult emotion to replace and it's very difficult to walk away from that. But for the moment, no, I think the people in Sligo are doing a great job and I'm quite happy to take a back seat for the moment. And Sligo Rovers have recently qualified for Europe for the first time since you were chairman. What do you see in the future for Sligo and other Irish clubs in Europe and as a league? Well, I think the, the biggest problem is the funding differential. Europe provides so much money relative to the League of Ireland. So some clubs like Dundalk last year concentrate on Europe to the detriment of the league. But what it does do is it allows Sligo to attract better players and to attract players who are more geared towards the ambition and moving on in the game by being in Europe because it gives them a window to show how good they are. And one of the things that I worked on at my time and thankfully has come to fruition is there's a very strong link and a formal link now between Sligo and Everton. Seamus Coleman was in Sligo just before I was involved, obviously captain Everton now, and we have a formal link in there. So young players in the west of Ireland or players with Sligo go over there and are able to show their talents and improve their skills. So that's that's advan- advantageous to us, attracting better quality people to Sligo. And Europe will help do that. And Europe will also provide a lot of money. Like if you win a round in Europe, even it, it's, you know, 40, 50 percent of your annual budget in one match. It's 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 quite lucrative. Yeah. Once again, Dermot, thank you for taking the time today to come and chat to us at Rockcast. Perfect. And I wish you guys all the best. It's a tough year, difficult year for you and one you'll certainly remember. But thanks a million for having me and mind yourselves and stay safe. Thanks a million, Dermot. Welcome to the final segment of today's Sports Rockcast. This segment is our Premier League starting 11, based on the best players since 2010. Josh, David, Connell and Fiacre have all picked their teams and now they'll share them with us. So Josh, who's in your team? So a goalkeeper I put David De Gea. His performances have still been recognised with five... And, oh, I need to start again. Shit. Uh, okay. So, at goalkeeper, I put David De Gea. He's had five inclusions in the PFA Team of the Year, more than any other player over the course of the 2010s. He was also named United's Player of the Year four times in the space of five years. Put Carl Walker right back. He's been named multiple times in the team of the season. He's, he's been doing decent this season, but, like, uh, recently, uh, a while ago, he was doing very well. Van Dijk at centre-back, he's a brilliant player, uh, helping his team secure the Premier League last season and the Champions League the season before that. 
Sadly, he's, he's injured now, but hopefully he'll come back. But Vincent, Vincent Company at centre-back, he's like a rock at the back. He captained the side at three Premier League titles. Uh, that's why he's on my team. Just put Robertson left-back. So very good left-back and has dominated the previous seasons. Way past any left-back in the past decade. Uh, I put Yaya Torre at CDM as he was instrumental to Ma- Manchester City and is one of the best uh, City midfielders in history. He even scored 20 goals in the league in the title-winning season of 2013-14. to 14. He has 62 Premier League goals. Uh, I put David Silva and De Bruyne also in midfield with uh, David Silva at the right mid. Uh, they're an amazing duo who up until recently continue to show their skill together. Silva has over 90 assists and 60 goals in the Premier League and De Bruyne has 39 goals and 77 assists. Once we mentioned in the team of the season many times. I have also, uh, then I have Eden Hazard at left mid. Uh, he's one of Chelsea's best ever players, scored 85 goals and 54 assists in his 245 appearances there. Then I had two strikers with Kane and Aguero, two brilliant players. I don't think this needs much explaining. Uh, Aguero's fourth place for the most amount of goals ever scored in the Prem, and Kane's in ninth place. Uh, so that's my team. I'll now pass you on to David McHugh. Hi, I'm David, and I'll be taking you through my Premier League team of the decade. Starting off in goal, I've gone with David De Gea. At right back, I've gone for Trent Alexander-Arnold. Unlike De Gea, Alexander-Arnold's best days in England are yet to come. Already a Premier League winner at the age of 22, the fullback has already made over 100 appearances in the competition, picking up successive spots in the team of the year in 2019 and 2020. At centre-back, I've Vincent Company. A rock at the back for Manchester City for several years and a key figure in the club's dominance in English football for quite some time. With his tough tackling and rugged dealing of opposition strikers, the former captain brought fans back to a time when English football was filled with traditional, no-nonsense defensive heroes. My other centre-back is Virgil van Dijk. Another colossus at the back and one that Liverpool had been crying out for before he arrived at Anfield. Van Dijk's impact on Merseyside can be very much linked to companies on Manchester with both clubs more often than not proving incompetent without their star men in defence. At left-back, I've gone for Patrice Evra. Only two of Evra's five league titles may have come in the most recent decade, but that doesn't show how successful his career was in England. Interceptions and perfectly timed tackles were very much the name of the game for the former French international. My first centre mid is going to be Angolo Kante. He may not have been in the division for very long, but his huge achievements haven't gone unnoticed. Kante joined Leicester in 2015 from the recently promoted League One outfit Kane, slotting straight into Claudio Ranieri's midfield. He was linking up with Riyad Mahrez and Jamie Vardy, which helped them the Foxes to an impossible league title. Alongside Kante, I've gone for David Silva. Silva has over 300 league appearances in blue, produced 93 assists, which leaves him sixth in the all-time leaderboard. Add to that his 60 goals and 214 wins, and it really is an astonishing career. From short passes and delicate through balls to tricky footwork and mesmerising displays, the midfielder won't be forgotten at the Etihad anytime soon. My last player to make up the midfield three is Yaya Torre. There was a couple of contenders for this spot, but Torre just about edges them out. Torre was involved in three of City Premier League triumphs and was a key player for two of them. He registered a phenomenal 20 goals in 35 league games. On the left wing, I've gone for Eden Hazard, one of the most individually talented players the league has ever known. Hazard set the Premier League alight for seven years before finally moving to Real Madrid in the summer of 2019. 
His honours list includes two titles at Stamford Bridge, while his personal contribution involves 85 goals and 54 assists across 245 matches. As my striker, I've picked Sergio Aguero, arguably the individual who has the best effect on English football this decade. He has managed 20 or more goals in the Premier League in six of his eight full seasons at City. He has been twice the club's player of the year and has earned his place in the Premier League team of the year for the last two seasons running. To finish my off on the right wing, we have Mohamed Salah. Salah has now scored 20-plus goals in four consecutive seasons for Liverpool. Since joining Liverpool, Salah has been Premier League top scorer twice and he's top of the charts yet again this year. And yet he just doesn't seem to get the love that some players do. While remaining a serial goal scorer, his influence outside the box has become increasingly instrumental. Now I'm going to pass you on to Connell Hodges. Yup, Connell. Uh, my first, uh, in goals, I'm going to go for De Gea. Uh, he's got the third most clean sheets and the second most saves uh, since 2010. Uh, a right back, I've, I've gone for uh, Zavaleta. Uh, because he's got the most tackles in the Premier League with a whopper 799. Uh, the first centre-back I'm going for is company. He's played a very big role in Man City's success, uh, of like winning the title race many times. Um, com- uh, second centre-back, I'm going for Van Dijk. He has been the best defender in the world since uh, 2017. And then a left-back, uh, I'm going to go for Patrice Eva. He's a Man United legend, and he's just a very good right, or left-back. Um, the first centre-man I'm going for is uh, Jesse Lingard. He's He's been the best player in the league this month, and I think he deserves to be in the team for decade, the team of the decade, because he's just been the best player uh, for this month. And the second centre-man I'm going for is Yaya Torre. He's just he was just a key member of uh, City's success. Um so a right mid, but he's he's a centre mid, uh, or cam, uh, is David Silva. Uh, I picked him because he's got the most chances created since twenty ten and the most successful passes completed. Uh, a left mid, I've gone for Eden Hazard. He uh, he just he was just phenomenal. Uh, he's got the second most chances created behind uh Created behind uh, David Silva, and he's got the most dribbles completed. Uh, the first striker I'm going for is uh, Wayne Rooney. He's he scored the third most goals in the Premier League, and he's just he's just a legend at uh, United, and he's just one of the best uh, players ever in the uh, Premier League. And then the second striker I'm going for is uh, Aguero because he's scored the most goals in the Premier League and has a. Um, like he's was a key person uh, in the Man City success. So lastly, I'm going to be passing you on to uh, Fiegra. Yeah. So I have also gone for David de Gea in goal simply because he was the best goalkeeper in the league for at least five of the ten years since 2010. Even with no defense in front of him, he was very very good. And. At right back, I will be going for Trent Alexander-Arnold because of his crossing ability and the fact that he was a huge part of Liverpool's two very, very good seasons in the in the past three years. In centre-back, I'm going for Vincent Kompany as well because he led Man City to all of their Premier League um, wins to date. 
and played a huge part not only in defence but also causing trouble in the box on corners and he scored a really good goal against Leicester that effectively won them the league two years ago. Nemanja Vidic is going to be my other centre-back as he's won two Premier Leagues since 2010 and was very, very good during those years, even if a lot of his best performances came before 2010, which is a similar situation with my left-back, who's Patrice Evra, who also won two Premier Leagues since 2010 and is just a very good left-back. In midfield, I'm going for N'Golo Kante, because he's won two Premier Leagues now for two different teams and two years in a row. I think he's one of the very few players that have actually done that. He is a very, very good defensive midfielder and covers a lot of ground and makes a lot of tackles. Alongside him is Yaya Toure, who won three Premier Leagues with Manchester City and has a habit of scoring some very, very ridiculous goals and very good free-kick taker as well. Quite similar to Kevin De Bruyne, who is the last midfielder. Man City wouldn't be lost without him, but there's a lot of moments that he just pops up and always scores a goal or an assist every game he plays. On the left wing, going for Eden Hazard. He won two Premier Leagues with Chelsea in his time there. and He left for nearly £100 million two years ago. That means that he definitely had played some very, very good football in the years leading up to that to earn such a prize tag. On the other wing, I'm going for Mohamed Salah, who the first time he came to the Premier League really struggled, but he left for a few years and came back as a much, much better player and led Liverpool to the Premier League and the Champions League in that time. Up front, it's going to have to be Aguero. He's the top scorer in the league since 2010. And has been a huge part in all of Manchester City's Premier League wins, especially in 2012 when he turned the game around almost by himself at the end. Yeah, I'm happy to Joseph Carroll to finish it off. Thanks for your current. I think that's interesting to see some great teams and five players in everyone's team. David De Gea, Vincent Company, Yaya Torre, Eden Hazard and Sergio Aguero made everyone's team, which shows how dominant players they were. That's all for us this week on the Rockcast Sports Show. We'd like to thank Dermot Kelly for taking the time to join us, all the lads who helped put together the podcast, all the listeners for tuning in. Also, make sure to check out the other Rockcast podcasts, such as the Entertainment and News podcasts. Thank you for listening and goodbye.